0: DW, World in Progress,
1: with Sarah Steffen.
2: Welcome to the show that's all about the power of books. We visit a bookstore in Istanbul, where a Russian and Ukrainian have teamed up to bring people together.
3: I always said that I I want this place to be a place of dialogue and uh, where Russian-speaking
2: and Ukrainian-speaking guests could
3: just sit and have a real conversation.
2: Book bans have rattled schools in the U.S.
3: Book bans is not a new tactic. It's all to eradicate our history. It's eradicating our culture. And when young people do not have access to books
2: that represents them, they feel isolated. We also hear from a Moroccan bookseller who knows his books inside out, and we dive into a poetry competition in the UK. All that coming up now. I'm your host Sarah Stefan. And we start the show in Turkey. Since Russia invaded Ukraine in February last year, tens of thousands of Russians and Ukrainians have come to Turkey. It was easy for them to travel there, as Turkey was one of the few countries granting them visa-free travel. Some younger Russians opposing the regime of Vladimir Putin and his war have found refuge in Turkey's biggest city, Istanbul. There, a young Russian woman and her Ukrainian business partner wanted to create a space for Russians and Ukrainians to meet and decided to open up a bookstore where they sell books that are banned in Russia, among other things. Yelinia Gostoli reports from Istanbul.
1: Tucked away in a cobbled street in a trendy neighborhood in the center of Istanbul, a bookstore catches the eye of curious passers-by. Most won't understand its name, emblazoned in Cyrillic characters on a stone in an outdoor lounge area, or know who the man portrayed in the colorful graffiti art next to it is. But for a small group of people gathering at the bookstore for a poetry reading and lecture on a warm summer's day, Russian Nobel Prize laureate Joseph Brodsky is a recognisable face. The bookstore is named after his essay A Room and a Half, which he wrote after fleeing the Soviet Union to settle in the United States in the 1970s. The Half Room refers to the communal apartment he shared with his parents in St. Petersburg, where he was never allowed to return. The bookstore was the idea of 30-year-old Sanya Galimova, a former marketing manager with pink dyed hair, who, years later, found herself in exile after Vladimir Putin launched war on Ukraine. Uh, This essay is about
3: the um, destroyed home, destroyed home and rebuilt home, and I was trying to do the same opening this bookstore uh, because we, we like we lost our home we can I, I can go back to Russia if I go there after all these interviews I will be just uh, sentenced for 10 years uh, really fast like they will meet me in an airport yes and uh, I can go back there and uh, actually I don't think that uh, the home
1: exists. After, after all of this. Elena, a 33-year-old interpreter from southwest Russia, is among the handful of people who have gathered here on a sweltering Friday afternoon to hear Pavel Kotliar, founder of the Joseph Brodsky Memorial Museum in St. Petersburg, talk about the poetry and life of another famous Russian poet, Anna Akmatova. This place has a spirit of St. Petersburg for us the creative spirit of this beautiful city. After Russia invaded Ukraine in February last year, thousands of Russians began trickling into Turkey and neighbouring post-Soviet countries. They didn't need a visa to travel there. Elena's family, which is in part Ukrainian, was among those who came to Turkey. There is not much choice, honestly, <laughs> so Turkey is a welcoming country, sort of in between, politically and socially, that's why we're here, because uh, we, we don't quite feel that uh, anger towards our nation that much as in other countries. Elena refers especially to European countries, which have progressively closed their doors to Russians since the war began introducing bans on travel and certain visa types for Russian citizens. The number of Russians settling in Turkey peaked after Putin announced the mobilization of additional troops to fight in Ukraine last September. But even in Turkey, in recent months, things have begun to change and many have been forced to leave. Since the beginning of the year, Russians have increasingly been denied stay permits, unless they are retirees, or rich property owners. By the time Sanya announced the opening of a new Russian bookstore in Istanbul last December, hundreds of thousands of Russians, including many opponents of Putin, had settled in the country.
3: I wanted to speak up on this situation, like to speak up on this war. I started to think, what can I do? Uh, just to speak up uh, and uh, when I settled down in Istanbul I found out that uh, there is no Russian bookstore and no Ukrainian bookstore uh, so I quit my job and started a Telegram channel named In Half.
1: On the channel, Sanya was sharing her idea for a bookstore and snippets of life in Istanbul.
3: A known man reached me in Telegram and uh, he was writing like, oh, hi, I, I'm reading your channel on a bookstore. I think it's a great idea. Can we meet for coffee, please? I said no like three times, uh, but uh, he was quite stubborn. So we met uh, and uh, I found out that this is a Ukrainian man who left Ukraine in much more severe uh, situation. Like he, his his house was bombed.
1: Eventually, the Ukrainian man who did not want to be interviewed and prefers to stay anonymous, working behind the scenes, became Sanya's business partner.
3: All the propaganda from the both sides, trying to convince us that uh, Russians and Ukrainians have uh, hate each other so much that they are ready to to run this war, but uh, starting a business together and uh, doing doing it great is kind of our anti-war
1: statement. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian refugees fleeing Russia's attack have also settled in Istanbul since the invasion started. But the relationship between the two communities has often been fraught. Currently, Russians are the number one holders of both short- and long-term residency permits in Turkey, totaling more than 240,000, according to Turkish government figures. Sanya came with the first wave shortly after the war began.
3: I wanted to keep safe my husband and my daughter, and I think uh, they were the most vulnerable in this situation. Uh, It's easy to understand why my husband was vulnerable, because uh, he's a man, and he could be taken to war and uh, or go to prison.
1: As for her nine-year-old daughter, she says she didn't want her to grow up in an environment of fear.
3: And uh, I know how Russian propaganda machine works. Uh, I knew that um, they will do uh, some <laughs> extremely um, violent propaganda in schools, uh, I used to say her, uh, I always kept saying her that uh, she always has a right for her opinion and she has a right to speak up on it and uh, it was really important for me uh, for her to learn that we live in a world uh, of people with different opinions and uh, we have things that they believe and we speak at home but uh, on streets, in school, or playgrounds, uh, we speak opposite. And uh, I understood that it would be a great pressure on her uh,
1: mind. On the shelves, there are books that are banned in Russia. They include All the Kremlin's Men by exiled Russian journalist Mikhail Zigar. The bestseller, Sanya says, is A Summer in a Pioneer Tie, a novel about a summer romance between two teenage boys. The book earned its publishing house a government investigation for violating a new law, passed in December last year, which effectively banned any public expression of LGBTQ behavior or lifestyle in Russia. Ironically, the book in Russian has sold out several times in Turkey, a country where free speech is curtailed and where pride parades are banned. And uh, we order lots of banned books
3: because they are most important in these times. And actually we have some books for
1: children about war and politics. Sanya hopes the bookstore will soon start selling books in Ukrainian as well as Russian. But that comes with several challenges, both logistical and political. Ukraine's culture ministers urge the country's allies to boycott Russian culture until the war ends.
3: I always said that I I want this place to be a place of dialogue. And uh, where Russian speaking and Ukrainian speaking uh, guests Mm -hmm. could just sit and have a real conversation.
1: That conversation, Sanya admits, has struggled to take off, despite the bookstore's links to Ukrainian groups, for instance, raising funds for refugees. Brodsky, the man the bookstore is named after, is a controversial figure for Ukrainians. He sparked controversy in the early 90s with a poem where he lamented the independence of Ukraine from Russia. The poem, which he likely knew to be politically incorrect, was never published. For many Ukrainians, Brodsky stands as the symbol of the Ukrainian phobia of ordinary Russians, and the refusal to accept an independent Ukraine. The incriminated lines say that Ukrainians on their deathbed should abandon their love of Ukrainian poet Taras Shevchenko and instead embrace the Russian literary figure Alexander Pushkin. Isn't that problematic? I put that question to Elena, the translator whose family is Russian Ukrainian. In many representatives of Russian literature, in many books, you could feel that imperialistic uh, tone of voice. You know, it's just, it's just heritage. You know, like, we wouldn't cancel Pushkin because it's just our heritage, but it's just part of our culture. For now, A Room and a Half remains a place where anti-war Russians can reclaim their culture and narrative from Putin's imperial ambitions.
2: Elenia Gossoli, DW, Istanbul. A school district in Utah, a state in the western region of the United States, caused quite the ruckus when news broke that its school board decided to stop distributing the Bible to younger students. It said the Christian text contained violent and pornographic content and was not considered age-appropriate. This ban was based on a state law targeting sensitive school material, which had in the past been applied to books dealing with gender identity issues, for instance books that have come under the scrutiny of conservative Christian parents. The ban has now been reversed, and the 72,000 students in the Davis School District north of Salt Lake City are now able to find the book again on the shelves at their school's libraries. But this has opened up a wider debate on book bans. According to the American Library Association, the number of attempts to ban or restrict books across the U.S. in 2022 was the highest in 20 years. How did this come about? Ben Russell has more in this story by Katrin Brandt.
0: Across the United States, schools have been in the headlines for banning books. The latest book that's been up for debate, the Bible, at least in the Republican-led state of Utah, where the book board in one school district recently decided to remove the Bible from the library.
4: They came back with a decision that it is appropriate for high school students.
0: That's Chris Williams, the school's district spokesperson, speaking on local television. But they also decided the Bible was...
4: Based on vulgarity or based on violence.
0: Which is why it was decided in early June that the Bible will no longer be distributed to younger children and teenagers. The Bible ban in Utah of all places, where more than half the population are devout Mormons, sounds like real-life satire. And indeed, the complaint, which was filed anonymously, is dripping in sarcasm. Last year, the state of Utah passed a law banning pornographic and indecent content in schools. If this was true of any book, the complainants argued, then it had to be the Bible. They even provided pages and pages of quotes. It was enough to convince the committee responsible. Chris Williams further justified their decision.
4: Trying to do everything we can to follow the new state law regarding sensitive materials in our schools.
0: The notion of declaring books unsuitable and banning them from school bookshelves is nothing new in the US. So far, it's mostly centered on alleged pornographic content and vulgar language. But now, the books which are most frequently banned are those which deal with sexual orientation.
3: I don't want my children to be taught heterosexual families or bisexual or, or trans or transgender or any kind of sexual. I want my children to be teaching academics.
4: That's it.
0: That's Catalina Stubbe of Mums for Liberty, an ultra-conservative organization that so far has been very successful in petitioning against books that they believe sexualize children. They've also been pushing for limiting discussion about race and LGBTQ plus issues. The organization started out with Florida mothers fighting COVID-19 restrictions in schools, and quickly became a national player in Republican politics. Mums for Liberty has sought to take over school boards in multiple states and is looking to expand their reach across the U.S. and to other education posts in 2024, clashing with teachers unions. Mums for Liberty has been called a far-right organization by the Southern Poverty Law Center, saying this extremist group follows an agenda that works against the inclusion of all students. And they are doing more than just banning books, says LGTBQ activists like Devon Ojeda of the National Center for Transgender Equality.
3: Book bans is not a new tactic. It's all to eradicate our history. It's eradicating our culture. And when, you don't, and when young people do not have access to books that represents them, they feel
2: isolated.
0: In the previous school year, 2,500 books were removed from school libraries especially in conservative states such as Texas, Florida, and Utah. According to the writers' association, Penn America, Republicans are likely to push the issue further with a view to next year's presidential election. However, the mood is different in other parts of the country, says Chris Finnan, an anti-censorship
4: activist. The opposition is growing. The other side is overreaching, and it's making people mad, and they're getting active.
0: One course of action people are taking... There are now book clubs dedicated to banned books.
2: Ben Russell with this story by Katrin Brandt. Now, if you pay attention while you're walking around Morocco's capital, Rabat, you may spot some small bookstores, although they're sometimes hard to find. As inconspicuous as they may seem, inside is a true paradise for book lovers. From thrillers to guidebooks, schoolbooks to historical and religious texts, everything can be found inside these little stores. The only question is, where exactly? Because these books are not neatly displayed on shelves. Rather, they lie on the floor, partly overlapping one another, or they're simply stacked from floor to ceiling. There's no computer system here either. But the bookinist, as the bookseller calls himself, still knows how to help you find whatever you're looking for. Anna Baya went to explore. Her report is presented by Jennifer Collins. Books, 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 as far as the eye can
5: see. Two tall towers of them are stacked to the right and left of the entrance to the bookstore, just wide enough to let one person through at a time. The store itself is perhaps the size of a small living room and roughly three metres high, but there's not much space to move around anyway. After taking just two steps inside, you're completely surrounded by books, right down to the last corner, on the floor, on the walls, in the centre of the room. This is the realm of Bookseller Brahim. The 50-year-old has been working here for over 30 years and knows virtually all of the books he sells here in the shop.
4: I know the title and the author of most of them. Then I pick out the book. I know where it is. All without the internet and computers. I have everything in my head.
5: It seems like something from another era. But people here know that if they need a specific book, All they have to do is come to Brahim's bookstore. It's located on one of the main streets in the Agdal district of Rabat. Brahim, a friendly man with a three-day beard, short greying hair and black horn-rimmed glasses, will search his collection for whatever they're looking for, like these students from the neighbouring high school.
1: Bonjour. Bonjour. vous est est-ce que vous avez la peste d'Albert Camus?
5: They are looking for The Plague by Albert Camus, which is on their school reading list. It costs them 30 dirhams, the equivalent of 3 euros. 18-year-old Magdalena also likes to read in her free time.
4: I actually like to read,
5: unless there's too much to do. Right now, I'm preparing for my final exams. But if a book is really interesting, then I'm happy to read it.
1: bien, ça dérangerait pas de le lire.
5: The repertoire in Brahim's bookstore ranges from French and Moroccan classics like Sartre, Balzac and Mohammed Shukri to dictionaries, novels, thrillers, children's books and historical and religious books such as the Quran.
4: Some are in Arabic, French, English, German and there are even a few in Chinese.
5: From the outside, Brahim's shop is hardly recognisable as a bookstore at all. The shop window is barred. The stacks of books behind it can barely be seen through the dusty window. It's also not possible to read the spines of the books because they're all lying with their sides facing the window. Brahim may want to change that at some point, but still.
3: La boutique, il est très bien connu, la plupart des
4: gens, ils la connaissent. People know I'm here. We've been here for 30 years. Maybe I'll change something, but I just don't know what to do with all the books. Pour savoir où est ce que tu mets les livres.
5: Brahim isn't worried about the competition from the internet or e books. He's convinced that there will always be people who prefer to read real books rather than just on a tablet, just like himself. He likes to read before going to sleep or in his chair right in front of the store. So far, he and his family have been able to make a living from it.
4: Yes, I have a family, three children. I'm lucky. We don't make great bounds, but we live just like everyone else.
5: Finally, Brahim shows us a second room, which is also full of books, stacked from floor to ceiling. But how many are there exactly? (laughs) He has no idea, but you can count on him to find you whatever book you're looking for.
2: (laughs) Jennifer Collins with a report by Anna Baia. And for our last report, we talk poetry. Celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, Poetry by Heart, is a competition in England where students between the ages of 7 and 18 can take part by choosing a poem, learning it by heart, and performing it at school. Staff then choose their favorites and submit entries via video upload. Aimed at changing the way teachers, as well as young people, perceive poetry, this idea seems to be paying off. This year, a record number of young people took part, with judges watching 2,000 videos to select the finalists. Denny Mitzman went to the grand finale at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in London and sent this report.
0: We have a job for you,
5: he said. God, in his big gold heaven, sitting in his big blue chair, wanting a mother. For his
6: little there child. can be no better place in England for the grand finale of a national poetry speaking competition than the Theatre of the Great Bard himself.
0: Yeah, as someone who loves Shakespeare, to be on one of the most prestigious stages in the world is incredible.
6: In their final school year, Alistair, Catherine and Jennifer are all poetry enthusiasts. I love how it tells a story. I think as a child I remember like Albert and the Lion and the Jabberwocky and those ones, and I grew up sort of listening to poetry. I love how musical poetry is as
2: well.
0: With like novels and books, it takes a whole book to create, Something that can be created in a few lines of poetry, so when it's done effectively, it's really impressive.
6: The sharp white teeth, the horrid grin, and Wolfie said, May I come in? Poor Grandma was terrified,
3: he's going to eat me up, she cried.
7: I think for me, the most important benefit of working with a poem in the way that we advocate is the enjoyment of poetry. It's that Um, engagement it's choosing a poem that speaks to you and really giving it your voice and lifting it off the page and not just your own enjoyment but the way that that connects young people to the listener whether that's one person or their class or their school or 800 people at Shakespeare's Globe it makes connections Ten years ago, Dr Julie Blake co-founded
6: Poetry by Heart together with the former Poet Laureate, Sir Andrew Motion. Their combination of educational and poetic insight have proved a winning formula.
7: The curriculum has become funnelled into technical analysis and poets don't see poems like that they see them as things that are to be spoken to be shared between people to be given life in breath and pulse and heartbeat and that's what we wanted to bring into poetry and education
0: the distinction i always make in my own mind is between learning things by rote which is basically a pain in the neck and sounds like a chore and and learning by heart learning something by heart which implies that you're doing it as a kind of emotional necessity and that you're going to be nourished by it once this, whatever it is, is, is inside you.
6: Poet and judge Daljit Nagra wholeheartedly agrees. Poetry, when I used to teach poetry at schools, it, there was no value given to the emotional response to the poem, but much more to your ability to break it down, as though you were trying to dismantle a car engine. So I sympathise with children when they say they hate poetry, whereas with Poetry by Heart, it's all about The emotional engagement with the poem. Hopefully every child comes alive when they read the poem and they feel 100% fully committed in the landscape, the world of the poem, as though they're walking through it.
0: Get off, you terrible inhabitor of silence. I'll not have it. Get away
6: to whoever it We'll have you. For months, teachers all over the country have been preparing their classes for Poetry by Heart. This year, a record 90,000 young people took part, with 37,000 learning a poem by heart for the competition. A hundred students from every part of England are performing here today, some in the individual competition categories, others doing freestyling groups. Watch up your Shakespeare star- The Kingfishers from Riverside Primary School near Liverpool opened the event with their Shakespeare medley. Head teacher Christina LaHive can't take the smile off her face. I couldn't be more proud because when I was at secondary school I was really excited to be studying Shakespeare, and the words that my teacher said to me have remained with me ever since. She declared, we were going to do Shakespeare this term, but it's just not for you lot. And now to have them performing at the Globe I cannot tell you what that means to me. Or to the 13 pupils she's brought, including Joseph, Oscar and Stephen. The best thing about poetry is that it takes you to another world. What's the best thing for you? Um, probably the experience, because you don't really get to come to London and perform in the Globe Theatre every day. Poets like Liz Berry have been getting a tangible thrill out of judging the entries. You automatically feel it. It's something about the electricity of the performance, a feeling that the performer is able to get under the skin of the poem, to really feel it. There's something about capturing sort of the emotions and the depth of the poem that I think I'm looking for. And I'm always amazed how really young performers, and some of them are so young, can hold the great emotions of these poems and then express them and communicate them in sort of thrilling ways, moving ways, really funny ways. It's sort of an endless source of delight.
0: My mum, she is hopping. Sinews are happening, wiry arms developing their full reach... The teachers
6: I've talked to today say Poetry by Heart's really helping overturn the idea that poetry speaking's just for the most intellectual or confident kids.
7: And Julie Blake says poetry's at last starting to lose its dusty reputation. I think that the reputation of poetry is changing and I think it's connected to all sorts of factors. You can't put your finger on one. Some people will find their route to poetry through song or through rap or through watching YouTube videos of someone who's doing something. Young people come to poetry through all kinds of doors and it doesn't matter which door they come through.
2: Danny Mitzman there, reporting from London. That's our show for this week. For more World in Progress episodes, go to dw.com slash Progress or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for listening. The Studio Tech was Jürgen Kuhn. I'm Sarah Steffen. Bye for now.